1: My guest today is Christopher McDougall. He's a New York Times bestselling author, and Chris has written books like Born to Run, a book I really enjoyed, Natural Born Heroes, and Running with Sherman. And I I personally was really excited to talk to Chris. He's a hard-charging Philly guy, very straightforward, but also just a lot of heart. Um, I really wanted to cover a lot of territory in this conversation, and, and I feel like we got to to tons of it and um he was generous not only with his time but also with his genuine thoughts and feelings and i i just hope you enjoy this conversation as much as i did
0: welcome to the gabby reese show it's all an experiment oh, Hello, gabby. hey gabby how are you I'm having a great day. How about you? Great. Are you in Hawaii? I am. Yeah. Yeah. It looks will like say we just kind of crisscross each other, right?
1: Uh, which
0: island are you on? Are you on? Oahu. Oh, you are? Yeah.
1: How was how that for you going from, uh, from Peach or Peach Bottom to, to Hawaii? And I mean, you're, you're a Philly guy. So how is island living that transition for you?
0: Yeah, it was weird. It was kind of a slow burn for me because, you know, we, we were coming back and forth a lot. My wife grew up here. Right. And so at the first, like, I don't know, seven or eight years we were together, I had no interest in Hawaii all, at all. You know, I was thinking like Waikiki resorts, wasn't interested. And then finally she like lured me over and brought me to Kailua. And once I saw what like, like a neighborhood's like, yeah. then, I, then I got it. That's where we are now.
1: When I always joke, you know, that that Hawaiians are not so dissimilar from East Coast um, people, really, when you get into it, right? They love you, they are very direct, um, they have a little bit more like playfulness in their sense of humor. I mean, people always joke about New York being like the place, but I always say Philly is the one with the, like, the <laughs> most hardcore, I'm gonna give you such a hard time and then you know how much I love you, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, there is definitely no lack of passion. And- yeah. You know, the difference though here is that it's like identifiable in Philly, you know, it takes a few years to figure out, Oh, the fact that you're yelling at me, it's a good thing. Yeah. You know, here it's actually a normal human response of like compassion and, and welcoming.
1: Oh yeah. I think I always joke that Laird's speaking voice, they're like, is he, is he yelling? I'm like, yeah, no, he's excited <laughs> about everything.
0: He's that's, the one, that's the one thing though. I really appreciate from back East is that, you know, people speak with inflection. Like they bring me energy, energy the conversation. Um, like so many times I listen to podcasts and things and I, I just feel myself just nodding off because it's that same slow, measured way of talking. It just drives me nuts.
1: It was like uh, um, Saturday Night Live, sweaty Balls or whatever. Remember the NPR thing with uh, Alec Baldwin?
0: No, I didn't see it.
1: Oh my gosh, there's a skit where the two women are acting like they're in like a public television show and they're like, Oh, that tastes so good! Oh, it's amazing. I really, you know, it's all that. I, I'm guilty good. of that actually. I think that's why I married somebody so so passionate. So I really appreciate your time. Laird sends his love. I, yeah. uh, you know, I want to dive right in because I think for me, what's what is you know, in doing my homework. I mean, I I actually genuinely read your books when they all came out. Yeah. Um, and so that's part is easy, and I'm excited to talk about that, and and even really some of the psychology behind it because. I think you know from uh, whether it's Born to Run or Natural Born Heroes or you know, and I and I really love um, running with Sherman, but is those books have been talked about a lot. But what I what I'm excited to learn more from you is is really these psychologies of heroes and things like that. Um, but but maybe we could start a little bit at the beginning because you you have had an interesting journey from being a, you know war unexpectedly a war correspondent um and you said you yourself say you were a bad teacher but I, I've had a thought about it after and after watching you that I feel like you sh- you you would be an incredible like college professor because you say it straight you've had a lot of different experience and um I don't know i I feel like that's something that you would crush. I mean, sitting at a high, you know, a high school place where people don't care about English, maybe not, but someone who would be sort of interested in maybe writing as a career, I don't know. I think you'd be-
0: I can I tell you, Gabby, right now, I'm a little bit apprehensive about this interview because I feel like you're delving into stuff about me that I may not have examined myself. So I'm already on the defensive a little bit like, man, you're cracking my head open here.
1: Well, no, it's just, you know, listen, I think to, to write what you do, I think it's to under, also to be, you know, it's, it's like athletes or anybody. I always say, listen, you're the loaded gun where you're aiming it is what's, you know, is where, you know, what, okay, it's in books, it's in this, but you're what's interesting. And I'm always right. interested, yes, in what you've learned through your path, but I'm, and it's just what hit me. I was like, I would definitely go to that guy's class because your filliness is so straight. It's undeniable.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah.
1: So so tell me a little bit about, you know, how you grew up and how you sort of decided, okay, I'm gonna
0: teach for a minute. For a very brief minute. Well, it's a weird thing. And you know, I'm at the point in my life now where I'm finally starting to backtrack a little bit and try to find those like bread cl- those breadcrumbs back to the past. You know, I think most of my life I was always in like relentless forward motion and charging for the next thing and now i'm kind of circling back like now i'm a parent i'm like looking back at my own parents and stuff they did and so um yeah so a couple of those things are just starting to become uh obvious to me like the first thing is you know i kind of forgot about the fact that i was kind of like a loner um kid like i was a big time reader i just like to squirrel myself away somewhere and and read a lot and I don't think of myself that way because in subsequent years I really sort of plunged into full-on ADHD, and I, I don't know where that transition took place. But I was a very quiet, you know, um, bookish, do my own thing kind of kid. And then somewhere around I don't know uh, seventh or eighth grade, you couldn't get keep me in a chair, and it was always onward. Do you, are you an only child? No, there's five of us.
1: Interesting, and nobody yeah. pushed reading on you, it was just sort of your own. You did you go, were you into like going into the fantasy of these other worlds? Like, what was it for you that the reading or was it the
0: learning? Which definitely we was think. not the definitely was not the learning part, okay? Right, because
1: a little kid, it's like, I don't know,
0: yeah. If you tell me I've got to do something, I ain't gonna do it, you know. <laughs> um, I don't know what it was, I think it was just the pure storytelling, and to this day, that's what gets me, and when I listen to any other person speaking, I'm um, instantly judging them on how they're telling the story. Like, you know, what kind of words are you use What kind of imagery? Like, no matter what someone's talking about, I'm analyzing them like an Olympic judge holding up scorecards, you know? Like, bad presentation. You said, uh, too many times. And that's what I was as a kid. I remember being like eight or nine years old. And again, I look back on, you know, my parenting from back then, my own parents, I would walk to the public library, which is four miles away. I would walk four miles to the library and then spend a the whole day there and, and then come home again. And I'm wondering, did my parents even know where the hell I was? I could have been a, like an eight-year-old at a strip, strip club for all they knew, but I guess it was okay. So I would go there and just take a sack load of books home and just sit in the backyard and read. And then why teaching? Like, So you go
1: through and anything, I mean, were you running a little bit already? Did you run in high school? Like where did that, I know there was like a break in there that we'll get into, but were you running and sporty in high school?
0: I became sporty by uh, default because I was a big dude. You know, I was, I probably hit over six foot when I was still like in middle school. I'm six foot four, over 200 pounds now. So you're that side. You look back at the, like the class pictures, and it's all these heads, and then suddenly one darts up, and that, that was me. So I was a massive dude, and so you, like, you had to play football. You're in a Philadelphia neighborhood. You're a giant kid. Someone's putting you in pads. Uh, I didn't really dig it. Uh, basketball, I started to enjoy, and that was basically it. So, and, and in Philly, you know, basketball is like the lifeblood of the city. So you either play ball, or you talk basketball, or both. And so yeah i started playing basketball i started to dig that and that was the kind of my entry into the sport it, it was only by luck that i went to school in downtown philly was playing ball but i was never to this day i'm still not a good basketball player like i've never mastered the flow you know it's been 50 years of trying i i'm still like a herky-jerky player mm-hmm. but just by chance in philly there had been a really active rowing program through like 1940s and the 50s. Grace Kelly's brother, John Kelly, was a big rower in Philly. And the Schuylkill used to be full of competitive crew shells. And then they vanished. And then when I was still in high school, a couple of the high schools tried to revive that that rowing tradition. And I was a senior in high school hoping that I would get like a division three basketball scholarship somewhere. And the new crew coach walks into the gym. And he just looks at all the heads over six foot and wave this over and all the big guys, he goes, he goes, Hey, I'm starting a rowing team. Why don't you come down and try out? And all the basketball players are like, dude, F you, no way. Sitting in a boat on a river. But two of us said yes. And the other guy quit. And so it was just me and I ended up joining the rowing team and we had this like fantastic run of luck Won the national championship that year, I got recruited by a prep school to do, to basically repeat my senior year and it turns out that the sport i've been applying myself to like a monastic zen monk for years and got nowhere was the wrong sport and then once i sat my ass in a cruise shell i just took off like i've got the perfect frame and wiring for, to be a good rower and just never knew it
1: it's and rowing's hard you know i'm i'm 6'3 and and so i've always looked at rowing i grew up in the caribbean so we didn't have anything like that but I always watched rowing and I, and I was drawn to it because I think intuitively, and now I have since met many um, actually Olympic rowers and I'm sort of very typical sized um, and even in certain ways petite. I mean, these athletes are, um, in, they're so powerful but what I'm so amazed at is the precision of rowing. I mean, people don't understand. It's so precise and, and difficult.
0: You know what's cool about that, though, is that it's so easy to master in a way because it really opens your eyes to the fact of all this internal mechanism that we're not aware of. Like when you start to get comfortable with rowing and if the coxswain says, okay, we're going to shift from 32 strokes a minute to 36, eight people will simultaneously accelerate perfectly in sync. And again, it's just somehow this mental clock that you can calculate in a split second, the difference between 32 strokes a minute and 36, and you hit it. And again, I don't know where it is, but I feel like to this day, if you sat me on a rowing machine and said row 25 strokes a minute, I would hit it within two strokes. But again, it's kind of cool. It's this, this natural ability that's inside our heads that we never tap into.
1: But you said something important earlier about like rhythm. I think all sports, all things, relationships, communication, sports, it all has rhythm and i actually think though that what you're saying is yes okay maybe many people could do it but that's also maybe it was your thing too like when you said hey i got in a row and i found my thing i think it's also recognizing that that you know was your thing and and tuning into those mechanisms and things like that i don't think every person like the guy who can move a basketball around and move it up and down the floor in that dance so easily thinks oh this is like this for everybody
0: so i, I mean I, I agree with you for sure. And I think that is probably one of like the great tragedies of human life is that so many times we become infatuated with a thing that's not us, you know? I mean, think about body image, too. We all want to be that <laughs> right on, right? I'll tell you, I, here's a weird thing. I was watching um, one of the Austin awesome Power movies recently that has Beyonce in it. Mm-hmm. And when Beyonce is on screen, you're like, holy crap, like, She's unbelievable, like from top to bottom. Everything about her is so amazing. And I suddenly had this revelation: if I were a woman, I would kill myself. Like, she's tall. She's taut. She's sinuous. She's gorgeous. She has this amazing voice. Like, how do you ever live up to that? And well, well, you have
1: daughters, right? You have two daughters. Yeah. Um, You know, it's an interesting thing. That's I have three daughters, and you know, what I've I've talked to them about always too is I think ultimately somebody said to me once, men only see, not humans, but specifically biologically men, see only what you project. It's really only us women. Right. That are looking through this lens of, oh, the size of her thighs and the no, 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 right? And what we're seeing from someone like a Beyonce is talent and confidence, right? and
0: right, so, right,
1: right, right. It's just this thing where you're just like, oh, that is powerful. And I think that when if we could teach younger women earlier, that um, by the way, there's a million ways to be attractive. You know, I had a I had an interesting reminder. Um, I had the women's Pepperdine uh, volleyball team at my house pool training. I was just showing them some stuff because you know it's a lot of pounding on the hardwood floors. Okay, so here's 17 girls, and you know some are six four six three many are over six feet different shapes and sizes dark hair light hair dark light whatever and i think they learn early when you're surrounded by very powerful or badass uh women you get really comfortable with knowing there's a lot of them out there
0: yeah yeah
1: and so it's like how do we teach young women um because you're right otherwise it's you can just torture yourself on all the things that you're not, right? Like I'm not as smart as her, I'm not as talented, I'm not as pretty, my skin's not as nice, my teeth aren't as straight, whatever. And um, it is, it's tricky and, and it's just the gauge, right? Like you can produce beautiful books, make a living, um, you have a great sense of humor, you're smart. Okay, you get you know, sort of basically graded on that. And I think for women, there's a, you know, it's like, why is hair shiny? Why do women biologically flip their hair when they're young? because it's yeah. to show that their hair is healthy. And so they're yeah. good for reproduction, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I think once we kind of understand all of it and then be like, oh, cool, I'll work on what I can control. And you know, I'm like right now I'm 6'3", I'm 180. A long time ago, I was like, it's, you're gonna be different. Like you were saying, you were big and yeah. different. And that's everybody.
0: That's, that's the thing too so you mentioned my, my daughters like that to me is the number one lesson I feel like there's a lot of well let me backtrack a little bit I remember when our first daughter was was born I remember thinking the healthy, healthiest thing I can do for her is to disappear for 20 years like just not be a presence because I feel like everything I'm gonna impart is just going to be overpowering and all dude you know and I really feel like my wife should be running this show and I should be as much in the background as possible, but I have trouble remaining in the background. I just kind of want to get into the action and mess things up. But I remember thinking this is not the best for her. And I feel like the one place where I've had the most hopefully constructive influence is by letting them know that anything anybody else says, who gives a shit? It's just noise in the air, you know? Who says that this other person who says anything, they know anything more than you, that they don't have their own baggage. And even if they do say something, who cares? It's a momentary noise. And just forget all that and move ahead. And I'm watching my two daughters. They're four years apart. One's 21 and one's 17. And I feel like the 21-year-old is full on in that flow, like doesn't care, you know? Where's what she wants and just barrels through life. And the 17-year-old is still like, coming through the embarrassment tunnel. Huh. And I'm just kind of, I'm pretty confident, but I'm pretty pretty hopeful that she'll come through the other side with the same kind of, you know, armor that her older sister has.
1: I think, you know, the one thing that I think is so important is a lot of times when we see people that are, cause you you, you said something that's so true. One of the things I appreciate, and doesn't mean there's not women like this, but typically guys, it's like in sports, like, oh, you know, they can get in a fight, you know, and then you see them later and they're f- friends. And, and women, we're, we're, you know, generally a lot of times we take things more personal or what have you. What I've learned from being married for 25 years, and if like, I'm an only child, but if you have brothers is like, who cares? I think that that involvement besides cherishing and like loving your daughters and being like, it's like when you're 14 and some boys like you're pretty, or whatever and you go cool thanks i had a guy and he's at home and he's been telling me that and he's told me i'm special so i don't need to like like have sex with you just to have you tell me i'm pretty so it's like you give them that power of just straight pure love and cherish but also teaching them like who cares because i have a trickier time of that than Laird does and and sometimes just teaching people whether they're boys or girls that's good Screw it, screw them, screw it. Do your thing. I think that that's a great gift any father can give to any of their children. And also sometimes when you guys talk to children, it's a little more like, you know, I I try to be, you know, I think about all the words and I listen. And sometimes like Lara will be like oh, come on, give me a break and then give them a hard time. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, that's so much better. So yeah. I, I think that 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 kind of boom is important because that's what the world does to you anyway. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the world, right. it's coming, you know, like for us. So, okay, so, so you decide So tell me about um, then after high school, what, what? No, it's, was funny, it's
0: funny, it's funny, Gabby. I just remember your original question was asking me about becoming a teacher. It's okay. <laughs> I, more important. I spiral my brain so many different directions.
1: It's more important. It's more important because at the end of the day, you know, I, I have really, like for me, if you, if you say to me, hey, um, I by nature am, um, you, you know, ap- not an apprehensive person, but I'm always like looking ahead and strategic and a little more, just based on my, the way I was raised, w- was to be kind of on my toes a little bit. And the, the one thing that has consistently put me on my back consistently is being a parent. <laughs> so mm. it's like, I mean, I have gone to bed at night with, and said to Laird, I am really tired sometimes of feeling like I'm just getting none of this right. You know, like, yeah, and i and i now i've done it so long that i'm at a place somewhere i'm like oh no this is actually what it is yeah yeah it it it's the lessons i'm learning the ways to do it better and some of it's unavoidable and i do have friends that they seem to be way more in charge and their kids are more compliant and i'm like wow that's amazing but that is not what's happening in my house
0: yeah but don't you think that it's really about modeling you know not not parenting like Uh, Yeah, right. And, um, you know, I think the one thing, the really crucial thing was when our kids were little, I came from a really strict Sicilian Catholic, you know, everything's by the rules kind of thing. And so when our youngest daughter was like two or three and it's like having a tantrum and I like settled her and gave her a time out. And my wife's looking at me like, you know what, you know what she sees? She sees a giant monster. This is like 200 pound monster picking her up and sticking her in a room. She's terrified. And it just clicked in my head, like that was the last time we ever punished our kids. Um, And my wife was never down with the whole punishment thing anyway. But it just clicked in my mind of like, oh yeah, right. I never liked it when I was a kid. Why do I think it's gonna work with her? And so we never had to do it. And what I think they learned more from my wife than from me was just be calm, be happy, and just chill out and that's the way my wife constantly surrounds them and i think they've just adopted in their bloodstream this mentality you know what it's, it's kind of better to be chill and happy than it is to be screaming and yelling screaming takes a lot of energy and so i think by modeling that behavior and just living it you know the kid just sort of picked up on it
1: i think you're right and there's many there's there's a lot of time where i'm like banking on that yeah <laughs> like yeah. i My youngest at home is 13, so we have a 17-year-old and a and we have a a 26-year-old. So we have a grown daughter. Laird, I always say Laird came with a four-month-old. Yeah. Um, So, but there are days where I'm like, okay, I I really try to tell the truth. I'm I'm pretty hardworking. I treat people with respect. Okay, maybe that's going to be the thing that works, you know? Because yeah, because parenting per se, even like what you're saying, being calm. I try to be super calm and like, hey, let me articulate and let me hear, listen and be like, oh, that must be hard. I try not to fix things. I, I've listened to all this. And then there's times where I totally am in the car and something comes out. Usually it's entitlement when I hear entitlement. And yeah. I'm like, I am I just go like, and I will be super direct. And my daughter's like, oh, what's going on? And I go, oh no, like that's just too much now. And then, you know, an hour later you think, I think I blew that, but I don't know.
0: I think, I guess that's it. That's uh, your trigger. You know what my trigger is. Um... Fear. I'm afraid. That drives me crazy. If someone says, I'm afraid, like, I don't care if you're afraid. Of course you're afraid. Yeah. It's a weird trigger. It's, it's the instant way to aggravate me. If my wife or one of the girls says, Oh, I'm afraid. And I just like instantly like turn into a werewolf and want to insist that they do the thing. You're looking at me like I'm crazy.
1: No, I'm trying to think about if that's the protectiveness in you or the problem-solving person that's like, okay, we're going to fix their fear thing. Because ultimately what I have found or experienced is a lot of times if Laird's aggravated by something like that, it's because he cares so deeply. And like, for example, even in your book in Natural Born Heroes, to be a true warrior, one must be compassionate, right? It's like this idea of this hyper-masculine trait with like, well, we're going to fix that. You're going to get in there and it's going to go through it. And I don't want you to be afraid. I see that when my girls are suffering, Laird's like, oh, come on. Like he gets so intense because he cares so deeply that it's like, and also what's the solution? Not, Hey, let me just tell you my feelings. They're
0: like, no, well, let's solve it. I don't know. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Exactly that. Exactly that. Yeah. I remember that that sensation it actually kind of bothered me when that phrase like f your feelings came out because i thought previously like that was kind of a good thing to tell people and now that i see other people saying it in an abusive manner like i can't really i can't really sign on with that anymore because now it's being used to bully people but i used to feel that way too i don't care what your feelings are the question is what are you going to do about it yeah
1: but that's yeah I mean, in, in societies and cultures, it's like, yes, we have a situation. What is the solution? It's, it's an important trait. But obviously, when you're a dad and a husband, you know, it's like you learn and you've been with your wife a long time. It's like you start to soften those edges. You finesse. You learn to be like, oh, yes, okay, you know. Hey,
0: here's one the other day. So the other day, we were doing this long swim. Um, you know Flat Island here off of Kailua? Yeah. Okay, so we, my wife and I, and she would never swum out to Flat Island before. She wanted to do it. So we're swimming out, and I'm behind her, you know, because she's not comfortable in open water. And um, we're swimming along, and we're almost there. Like I feel like I can almost like stretch and touch the island. And she says, um, "Hey, we got to turn back. Uh, I'm um, uh, I'm really tired." And I go, "Tired? We're, we're right there, you know. We're dry land. You can rest on dry. No, no, we got to turn back. We got to turn back. I'm really tired. Like, okay. So we turn around. We swim back to shore, and she's like, "Actually, I started thinking about sharks." but I didn't want to tell you and she didn't want to tell me because she knew what my reaction would be is like there's no sharks but she was feeling afraid and she knew I had like zero tolerance for that and so she had to come up with another excuse which is reassuring that she knows me so well but really kind of depressing that she understands that I've got such a low threshold for, for fear
1: yeah well it's, you know, we, we, we do learn how to communicate. Nobody wants to talk about sharks when they're in the open ocean, just so you know, like I've been out serving yeah. Laird and I'd never say anything, but it would feel sharky to me. Yeah. And we get in the boat and I'd be like, Oh gosh, I felt sharky. He's like, I got a sharky vibe too. So, <laughs> um, I get that. Yeah. I really get this that. was not
0: that though. This was not her, not one to mention in the water. It's just that she knew it was all in her mind. It was. I think it was the apprehension of swimming further from land than she was comfortable with. And it started to well up these kind of fears of the unknown. Okay. And she knew that if she said the word fear to me, then I would have just like berated her and okay. been an asshole. So. But tired's okay. <laughs> Tired was plenty fine, yeah.
1: So, okay, so was the expectation for you to be academic and then, hey, you're out on your own. And so you just, you thought, okay, I'll just pick something that's easy that I know
0: I can do. No, the, the thing was, and this probably really explains a lot. Was you know, my family, my parents were the first in their generation or their families to go to college. You know, my my grandparents on both sides were were immigrants from Scotland and, and Italy. Um, they were discouraged from going to college. You know, both of their parents said, "Why would you do that? Exactly. You why don't you just work a good job?" I remember actually when I got a scholarship, a roaming scholarship to Harvard, my grandfather was like really? It's four years. Uh, why don't you just paint houses? Because I was painting houses to make money. He was like, painting's is great. Join the union. You're all set for life. And he thought rowing at Harvard was a ridiculous waste of time when you could devote four years to, you know, putting paint on a house. So what happened with my dad was he actually got kicked out of, he wanted to go to college and his parents kicked him out of the house. And so well, if you want to go, you pay for it yourself. He joined the Marines, got on the GI Bill, put himself through college on the GI Bill, and then had a wife and three kids when he was going to law school at night. And I, I still to this day, remember, I was five years old when he passed the bar exam. I didn't know what a bar exam was, but I, I vividly recall, like I'm watching a movie, the scene in my parents' house when he got the word, that he, I'm gonna get well up, when he passed the bar exam. And it was like shock and awe, like, oh my, it was like he'd just been made president. You know, this is the hugest change in our family's future that could happen. Like this guy who was working as a telephone lineman by day going to law school at night is now a lawyer. And a lawyer just had these connotations of absolute respect and power. And so that was the background I came from. Is like, dude, you become a lawyer, man. You are a God, you are Thor, God of Thunder. And so that was always the expectation was at some point, I'm gonna become a lawyer. And but I kept putting it off. Like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna do that, not just yet. You know, right now I'm reading stories and I'm playing ball and I'm rowing. And then I get out of college and I need to get a job. And the only thing I knew how to do, I was an English major, so I would teach English. I tried that for a year. But here's the thing: was I had such disciplinary problems in high school that going back voluntarily was a huge tactical error. <laughs> like. I didn't like it when I was actually had to go. And so I tried it for a year and I was, I was a terrible teacher. I just didn't do any of you know, I, I didn't want to grade tests. I didn't want to make tests. I didn't want to be there. And so I did it for a year. Didn't like it. It wasn't a good fit then. And so I took my money that I got paid during the summer and just started to travel around Europe, just backpacked around. And, I, and I, this is for me, like constant world of uncertainty. You know, like when you show up in a new country, you don't speak the language. You don't know anybody. It's constant for ADHD personality. It's, it's awesome because there's, it's something new everywhere you look.
1: Now, didn't you sort of speak another language? Like when you were, forgive me, is it uh, Portugal or Spain? Where were you? Portugal.
0: Yeah. So first, first it was Spain. So what happened right. was I taught that year in high school, hated it, got paid that summer, went to Europe, backpacked around, got to Spain, kind of liked it. And I think maybe because of my family's Italian roots, Spanish didn't seem that foreign to me. And so I just hunkered down there and just started getting odd jobs. This was like before you needed a work visa. And I just started to learn Spanish by ear and really liked it. So I was there for almost three years.
1: Wait, before we, before we leave it, I just am curious about your grandpa's
0: reaction to your dad becoming an attorney. Oh, you know that was the one thing that was okay. Um, for my, because you know they had he was a butcher, and he wouldn't put any money in the bank, so he kept buying properties. He had all these row houses in South Philly. So whenever he made money, you know, wherever he had a little extra money as a as a butcher, he would turn around and buy a row house. So that was his like four hundred one k plan was buying row homes in South Philly, and you know you had closing things and documents, and so he was always working with lawyers, and so all of a sudden, holy crap, you know, now we got one in the family. Someone just wheeled up like a. a Bushel full of cash, so yeah. Lawyer is the one thing you can mention. My grandfather, he would he would really respect and like.
1: And now, were your parents a little bit concerned about you when you're bopping around Europe?
0: <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. It, well, the whole the whole not becoming a lawyer immediately thing bothered them up until about five or six years ago. Oh, okay. uh, god. I, I remember being at my mother's seventy fifth birthday party. And having a friend of the family pull me aside and say, you know, a lot of people go to law school later in life. Like, there's no reason why you can't go now. And I'm looking at them like, really? And I thought, oh, they got this from my parents. <laughs> you know, this is New, the best York Time, New
1: York Times bestselling author is not, it's not, uh, well, because you're still an yeah. independent contractor, you know.
0: It was that kind of thing. It's like th- what they would see is some dude wearing a, like a My Therapist has whiskers T-shirt. <laughs> rarely wearing shoes and like, hey, how long is this gonna last? At some point the bomb's gonna fall out. This guy needs, you know, this guy needs a, a real career.
1: So you fake an interview in Spain and find yourself pretty quickly in Lisbon.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: We're, I mean, that's pretty ballsy. Uh, again, is that just your ability to think, oh, I'll land on my feet and I'll figure it out when I get there?
0: I think it's a couple things, you know, and one of it, you know, I'm at the point in my life, too, where I have stopped kind of patting myself on the back of how awesome I am and started to realize, oh, Ashley, dude, you know what? The rails were pretty well greased for you in advance. So, you know, you go through a lot of your life thinking that only due to the power of your own awesomeness have you succeeded. And then, no, Ashley, dude, you had hardworking parents that were up your butt nonstop. Um, you were a massive dude that could pull an oar. You take the oar out of my hand there's no Ivy League school, you know? So I went to a school where there happened to be a rowing coach, all these things, you know, really made each step. And then second thing too, is that the fact that I am a dude and can walk into a situation and I don't have to be afraid if someone's going to try and like get into my pants, um, that they're going to manipulate. Me. There's a lot of being a, a big guy in the world that you don't think about, until you have other women around you realize if I wouldn't want my daughter walking into that room that I was able to walk into without a blink. So yeah, part of it is that sense of there's not much bad that's going to happen to a big guy in the world. You know, you can talk to people, you can go into strange neighborhoods, you can go to strange countries and you're going to be okay. And so I had that going for me. Uh, but the second thing I think was, I really like situations that I don't really know what's going on because it gets, you know, it gets the synapses firing. Like I want to be able to think on my feet. I want to be able to bullshit and, you know, and, and see where it's going to go. I had that problem today as, as as a writer, where once I've got the thing figured out in my head, how I'm going to write it, I'm no longer interested in writing it anymore because now it's boring. Like I know what the ending is. I don't know, why, why bother writing it? And so that was it. I, I liked getting into job situations, interviews where I'm not qualified just to see if I can pull it off.
1: So you you, cut, you basically became like a head of a bureau. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and and I, from what I understand, it's like you, within a, f- a very short period of day, like days, you're sort of packed a bag and off and reporting on wars.
0: Yeah. So what happened was, I had worked in Madrid for about three years and was loving it. And I was like teaching English. Uh, I was a scene shifter for a theater company, which, you know, basically pushing, you know, backgrounds back and forth. It it was great. So I'm going to play for free. i am teaching a little bit of English. And I got just enough money to get by because, you know, you didn't need much to live in Madrid back then. But one morning I had this class where I was teaching at a bank in the morning. It was me and this British guy. And we were teaching a couple of bank officials um, English from like seven o'clock till nine o'clock. And every morning, this guy would walk in with this like massive mug of coffee. And uh, it was kind of unusual in Spain where most people have a little beca of espresso. Like no one walks around with like a big gulp full of coffee. And after a couple of weeks, I realized like that wasn't coffee. Like this dude was like self-medicating with like 16 ounces of brandy every day. And I remember looking at him thinking, oh, I don't want to wake up someday and be that guy. So, I tried to find another job, and I knew a guy who knew a guy who's working for the Associated Press as a news correspondent. So, I basically leaned on him to, Hey, is there any way you can get me an interview? Just, just an interview. And so, I get this interview for a job I'm completely unqualified for. I'd never worked as like a news correspondent, I was an English major, I could write okay. And I have a feeling that the bureau chief in the Madrid bureau was kind of like me. The other way around, like she was also like, what's a ridiculous challenge? So here's a guy trying to bullshit his way in. And here's a bureau chief. like, yeah, you know what? Let's see what happens. We hired this idiot. you know? (laughs) Can I just turn him into a news correspondent? So we were both looking for a weird challenge. And this unholy alliance ended up with me getting a job. And then here's the thing about it, too, was I've never been more intimidated by a human being other than my mother in my life. And I look back at this woman, Susan Lynnay, who was unafraid to get up in my grill and let me have it. And I, again, I'm a big dude off the street. But her thing was all about you either doing it right, or she was going to make sure you knew how wrong you were. And again, it was great training. I, I still remember the sensation of like cold sweat like trickling down my back, like what, Susan what, looking over my shoulder.
1: I was going to say, what does that look like? Like, you know, like you get the call or they say, can you come in my office or they call because at one point you're probably not in this. I mean, what does that look like when uh, Susan's, you know, Oh,
0: in a newsroom, it's very public. So a newsroom layout is a bunch of desks around each other. and There's only like six of us working in AP. So what she did was she trained me in AP Madrid. So she was boss of both Spain and Portugal. Um, But what she was looking for was a replacement for the head of the Portuguese Bureau. I was only a two person bureau. And so but she trained me in her newsroom in Madrid. It's like six desks in, uh, you know, right next to each other. And she had her own office. And so I would be out in the main bullpen working on a story. And Susan would say, okay, send me that story in 15 minutes. And after 16 minutes, she'd be out standing over my shoulder right behind me, looking at my screen. And I just feel her there as I'm trying to finish this thing. And she's like, just send it, just send it. I said, well, no, I'm not that, just send it. I said, just send it. You're just panicking every season up. You can't think anymore. And then you send it and then you come back and like tell you everything you did wrong. And everyone's watching, you know, the other five correspondents are just like, okay, you know, McDougal effed up again. So she grooms you and then ships you out. Grooms. Okay. Yeah, I guess grooms is a well, word you but, can use. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. So she trained me up and then put me on a train to Lisbon. And I walk into this office and was a two person office. And the head guy got him uh, a guy we used to call the cannibal because Susan hired him because he looked like the lead singer of the fine young cannibals. It's everyone called him the cannibal. So the cannibal had left and he uh, had been deployed in Bosnia. And so there was a part-time person. I was the new full-time person. And I walk into the office and the part-time person goes, oh, thank God you're here. Because I've been on a train for the past like 12 hours. I walk into the office and she's like, thank God you're here. Civil war just broke out in Angola. I'm like, oh, wow, that's, that's too bad. What do we care? We cover Angola. I'm like, why? It's a former Portuguese colony. Like, I didn't even know this, and let alone you know the fact that I was gonna cover it. Yeah, and then a week later, I was on a flight down to Angola to cover a war in a country I could not have found on a map to save my life.
1: And you, you, you share a really beautiful experience that while you were there, um, you know, some people there, they, and you see this everywhere, you know, you've heard, you talk about it in Afghanistan, where I believe, forgive me if that's wrong, in Natural Born Heroes, where, okay, I'll take you in, and my job's to protect you, and, and, you know, in Hawaii, they have hanai to, you know, to adopt, but you had, you were in Africa, and um, people who didn't have much, but yet they, you know, you had a situation where people, you know, looked after you.
0: Yeah, I think it's a much more natural thing than we think about, Gabby, this sense of compassion. And it really opened my eyes to, you know, I went into this job of war correspondent with this very kind of like Indiana Jones, you know, macho attitude. And I was very quickly humbled because when you're in a foreign country where there's a lot of risk around you, you better keep your eyes open and keep your mouth shut or you're going to get in trouble quick. And you really rely on people helping you all the time and particularly in this situation what i had done was i jumped on a uh, doctor without borders helicopter uh into a town that was surrounded by rebel forces and then the helicopter left without me so i was stuck in this town with no way to get word out that i was here and nowhere to stay and people just took me in and kept me in their homes uh, for the next four or five days until the helicopter came back and it opened my eyes to this thing, you know, that, you know, most of the times all this conflict going on, we're getting all this news out of Washington and and you think that this is the whole world and it's not, it's just this little district on the East coast, but the rest of us are just trying to like make lunch and make sure that our kids aren't flunking out. We're we're just trying to live our lives. And when you get that person to person connection, that's when people really start to see each other And, and not through the eyes of what's happening in Washington, you know, or cobble, but what's happening across your own living room.
1: I mean, I don't know if, it, you know, this is a very important time to be reminded of that. I feel that, you know, in the in the world energetically, it's it's, you know, to your point, it. I think people think, oh, everyone is scared of each other. And if you don't believe everything I believe, you're against me. I think that that has become so powerful that you're saying something that I think if we could remind ourselves and all you have to do is go to a grocery store. All you have to do is say, hey, good morning. How are you today? And you will have someone wherever they're from. Oh, wow. Yeah, great. I'm good. How are you? Oh, good. Okay. Like, it's not that hard. And it, and I think it's, it's so, so important. So, I mean... I, yeah, I think it's really
0: important. And you know, you know, where, you know where I really got that, Gabby, was where we lived in Peach Bottom, Pennsylvania for 20 years.
1: Yeah.
0: We had very few neighbors. And w- the one I saw the most was an old guy named Sam Metzler. You know, he's like a 78 year old farmer. He lived near us and he would drive back and forth on his tractor in front of our property like seven times a day. And every time he went by, he would greet me like he hadn't seen me in a year. And this is the seventh time I've seen him since breakfast. And he's always like waving and yelling. Yet we agreed on nothing. We were so diametrically opposed. He was a nearly 80-year-old Mennonite farmer. And I'm like a you know, guy from Philly. And whenever he stopped the tractor, I would say, hey, Sam, how you doing? He's like, oh, I'm not having a good day. What's the problem? Well, we went up to the school with a bunch of our Bibles. And they wouldn't let us into school. Yet they'd let the lesbians in. They have a club there for lesbians. And we can't come in with our Bibles. I'm like, of course not, Sam, because you are a religion. And then we would get into it. And we would argue like crazy. And then I go, all right, Sam, see you later. I got to go. All right, Chris, see you in a bit. And then off we go. But again, we agreed on absolutely nothing. Um, And I I was thinking to myself, Sam, you couldn't find a gay person if you wanted to. (laughs) Why do you care? And that was it. But I don't know, man. It's it's a very simplistic solution for the world's problems. But I could think, man, Sam and I could argue and yet really genuinely love each other. Then how is it so hard?
1: That's right, I have a I have a friend who's a quantum physicist and I, yeah. I say, you know, like, can you even believe in a religion or something? And he goes, my religion is empathy because I do believe if we can just visit and connect and he goes, mm. we're always gonna be able to find a common ground, you know? And uh, I, I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So after, you know, you were doing that for quite a while and, and it, you said that in a way, um, it just started to make you sad
0: yeah 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 you know i'll tell you what was um, the, the the pivotal moment was i've been covering angola back and forth for over three years and then the massacres broke broke out in rwanda and because i've been working in africa a lot at that point um they immediately shifted me over you know from west africa over to east africa to, to um go in with the Tutsi rebels. So the Tutsi rebels were just coming in from Uganda to try to stop the massacres. And I was able to embed with them and come across the Uganda border. So I was basically at the, the front of the advance as we're going town to town, chasing out the militias and driving them into Congo. Um, and the, the key moment, the first few days, you're like, holy, like, what is going on here? Like, this is unlike any combat situation we'd ever seen because the number of casualties was insane. You know, you come into most conflict situations and you'll see a few dozen dead combatants. We were coming into villages of finding hundreds of people which was bad enough, but what got me was When you see kids that are um, killed, it really shakes you up because you don't understand how that capacity is in another human. And to me, I I remember thinking at the time, isn't this an automatic shut off valve? Like when you hear a kid who's afraid, doesn't it instinctively make you just stop whatever you're doing? And so, that's what shook me up was realizing, oh, there's a whole different set of rules going on here that I wasn't aware of, that there are people who act this way. And I thought, I just need to get out of this for a little bit. So
1: when you, you know, we all go through things and and, and we think, oh, this is going to um, help me keep perspective on everything. Do you think you were able to go through all of that and keep some of that, those heavy, serious, real lessons um, when like you're in traffic in whatever Honolulu this many years later, like, do you know what I mean? Like, are you able to, does that keep you informed? All of that still sort of still um, stay with you and how you respond to the world. And it's some of the times it's annoyances.
0: I'm not sure, I think, um... I I feel like I haven't taken a lot of that on board, but it's more for my wife who grew up here, uh, who's got a very, very aloha attitude. I think for me, it was actually kind of a really negative thing. Um, I started to have this very deep-seated feeling like this could all end in a heartbeat, you know? Um, And today, it's like a morbid thing now. I keep talking about it. I keep saying, you know, I keep reminding my wife, like, what the insurance policy is, you know? Or if I go out for a paddle in the outrigger, I go out there, I think, okay, this this is probably, you know, It's probably a one-way trip. So uh, it's a weird, no. So now I I joke about it, but back then it was like a really dark feeling like, oh yeah, life is like that. And I think it made me um, harsher, you know, and a little bit more bullheaded, more aggressive about getting what I wanted. And it took a bunch of years to just kind of diffuse that and let it, you know, subside.
1: Yeah, because you know, a lot of times when people are in those kind of very concentrated, intense situations, they all, everybody responds so differently, you know? So I was just curious. So you, you yeah. came back, did you come back then? How did you meet your wife?
0: Yeah, that was a real, a real gift. Um, after a bunch of years of working in Africa, a couple of things happened. One was like, I feel like I need to be not there for a while. And I could've just stayed in Lisbon, in Portugal, which is a very chill place. You know, it's probably like the Hawaii of Europe, uh, Great Coast, not the places where you guys come, like Nazareth ain't, ain't it.
1: Yeah. But you it's, know, cool. it's like,
0: Yeah, but it's chill, it's fun, it's a vibrant place. But what happened was, you know, you start to tap out on what you can accomplish after a number of years there because nobody cares in America what's happening in Portugal. So I've, adopt, I've uh, sort of picked up all this information like I can write about, but I only have a couple of news paragraphs every once in a while. So I thought, wh- what am I going to do with all of this knowledge and skill I've been building up for the past you know, three or four years? So I thought I need to move back to the US and start doing magazine stories and books. I need to write longer and be able to sort of flex the skill I've been working on. So uh, look, I moved back to you, Philly. How did
1: you, sorry, but because in a way, English major or not, did you really in, sort of figure out a way to develop that craft of writing was this sort of like did you because it's also it's like your way your voice your style like all of these things how did you were you like oh i'm gonna really spend some energy in creating and developing this craft or was your boss you know giving like how did you come to that because it is it's a craft i mean ultimately yeah
0: i think there are a few things that work but yeah susan was hugely instrumental in this because You know, once I got into a job that I really couldn't do, I was a really bad news correspondent, you know, for quite a while. And she actually was going to fire me. And she came at nothing. So after my my initial bout in Angola, um, then I came back home. I was, was, so I got the job. I was covering a war in Angola. I was doing a pretty half assed job of it. I got rotated back to Portugal because it was Christmas time and the part time person was leaving. So I had to go back and cover the Portugal Bureau. One day that I'm there, a plane crashes in southern Portugal, and sometimes I'm covering a plane crash. And Susan was back for um, Christmas break in the mainland too, or in uh, the United States. So I'm covering a plane crash, and I'm in over my head. So these are usually two of the biggest stories a correspondent will, will cover is a plane crash and a war. And I had both of them in the per- first three months. So Susan, when she came back from Christmas break, actually came to Lisbon and said, you know, I was actually planning to fire you because you were so like half-assed in Angola. But you covered the plane crash, you're pretty good. So I'm gonna give you another chance. Like, so oh, thanks. And she kept me on board. And what I discovered was the mistake I've been making was trying to copy what other people were doing. So I was trying to write news stories like everybody else's news stories. And so I was constantly like second guessing. I was I was both myself and I was like Susan looking over my shoulder, and I just couldn't write. But then one day after the near firing, I was in the office and I came across a little story in Portugal about a woman who had just gotten arrested because she had impersonated an army general for 20 years. So somehow she had dressed herself up like a military general and got married. Somehow got married, impersonating a male general and was pulling down like an army retirement fund and all these army benefits. And her, one day, her wife accidentally discovered that she was actually not a dude, but was actually a woman. And so I read this news story like this is like bananas. And so I just wrote it up the way I wanted to write it up, thinking there's no way the AP is ever going to put this on the wire. But just for fun, I got, you know, a quiet morning. I send it off to Susan. And like in two seconds, the phone rings. And I'm like, oh, crap, man. She's going to rip my head off. She's like, finally, finally, you don't suck. And I'm like, wow, if there's ever an award I get, I want the finally you don't suck award from Susan Linnae. And because it was just a weird, funny story, but it was tight and quick and she liked it. And it just opened my eyes like, oh, I just stopped trying to imitate and just trying to do it my way. And that's when I started to like it. Like, so, okay, it's kind of like going from basketball to rowing. I want to be a basketball player. I was never good. Put me in a crew shell, like suddenly I can, this makes sense. And so I, that's the way I started to write. I, I kind of, the, the way I write today is just the way I started to write. I wrote that story about the general. Um, it's the way it feels natural to me. And I thought if I can just expand this into longer things, I can have more fun and tell better stories.
1: So you you head back to Philly, you start doing magazine articles and um, I'm going I'll, to, I'll over-summarize it Um but you, I think you were covering a story on like a sex cult rock punk rock star Mexican rock star <laughs> leader, which led you to um, to Born to Run ultimately because yeah. you were maybe because I think you know it's interesting um, and and I really am in, you know interested about the idea of hero and the hero within us. But talking about Born to Run, I mean you changed how everybody ran, first of all. Like, you know, now everyone's barefoot. And you, you say though that you personally, so you'd run a little bit. When you went there, why did you think that was a story about a tribe that could just run and run and run? Like what inside of you, I mean, what jumped out? Was it a reminder that we've gotten no, so far from something we've done so naturally?
0: No, I, I think it's all of a piece, you know, that I applied for the AP job because I didn't know if I could do it, you know, I, and I, I like things where I really don't know what the answer is. And so with Born to Run, it was just this, this question, like, wait a minute, how come I always get hurt and these guys don't get hurt? It was a genuine mystery that I didn't know what the conclusion was. Like When I was a kid, you know, my, my favorite stories were Sherlock Holmes mysteries. I love them. Like, And so... I liked it because I didn't, really didn't know. Like, who the hell murdered the guy? I don't know. And so that was it. And to this day, I like stories about where I don't, I can't predict what the outcome mm. so, is going to be. So Running with Sherman is of a piece too. Uh, Natural Born Heroes is the same kind of thing. Like, how the heck did these guys pull this off? If I don't know the answer to that question, then I'm motivated to try and find it out.
1: But it that, that book, I mean, Born to Run really, it, what it feels like from the outside is that that really that changed your whole life
0: in a lot of ways so but wait a lot before
1: of ways. we go there
0: yeah
1: how did you meet your wife because i love a I silly guy and a and a and a, a hawaii a hawaii a local girl i love this
0: have you noticed a pattern where you can't answer ask a question where i will directly answer i'm like <laughs> i'm okay with it <sighs> I'm taking you up and down the lanes. So here's the, here's the deal. And to me, this is what i talk about life-changing experiences. So I didn't tell you part of the story. Part of the reason why I left Lisbon wasn't only to further my career, but because I was dating a girl who had a fiance back in London and she couldn't decide between the two of us. And you while she was answer. trying- to, I didn't know the answer, all the more appealing. And then while she was trying to figure that out, I started dating her best friend <laughs> as well, which I felt was justified since she had a fiance. She had a fiance and yeah. then the friend was on board with it until but the friend had one rule which is, look, just tell me the truth, you know I understand you're trying to resolve things with our friend, but just don't lie to me. And so, yeah, I'm, that's easy enough. Until I did. And uh, I actually snuck off one weekend to visit the first one and didn't tell the second one. Second one found out and like lost her shit, as she should have. And I thought, just like Africa, this is a situation I just need to remove myself from. So, yeah. So that's why I moved back to Philly to get out of that situation and to also start magazine writing. Yeah. And while I was in Philly, so...
1: Wait, when you were in um, Lisbon, I need to know, did you eat those little flat almonds, uh, like those little cakes that they make? You know, the single yeah. ones? Oh yeah. God. If people go right? to Portugal, they have to have those. It's almost like Basque cake when you go to the Basque region or Biarritz or whatever,
0: anyway. Portugal is so underrated for its pastries. They're insanely good. Like malasadas, right? Malasadas from here, that's, that's a Portuguese product. So I was back in Philly and I started dating a bartender, which, you know, as a dude, if you can date a bartender, like that is like a badge of achievement because bartenders are constantly fending off idiots like me. So I'm dating a bartender and my best friend came to visit and uh, we're in the bar and i are like, hey, you know, what do you think? I'm dating Julie. And he's like, dude, I've been meaning to tell you this for years. She's crazy. You always date crazy and you can't tell the difference. You got this whole like Italian thing going on. If someone's like passionate, you think they're really cool and emotional, they're not. And he's like sort of the list like every girl that he knew that I had dated. And he's like, crazy, 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 crazy. I don't know the bartender, but I'm willing to bet, not sane. And it was so like insulting and rude, like what a horrible thing to tell somebody. And then like he's kind of got a point. Like suddenly it's like, you know, like the sixth sense, you know, that, that movie, like, oh, like I see the pattern here, you know. And that was it. And it was on the heels of that that I met Mika. And she was also working for the Associated Press, and they had just rotated her from Honolulu to the mainland for like a nine-month stint. They like to bring people from the far-flung bureaus onto the mainland for some like sort of close-to-home training before they send them back. And I was still so so stung by the fact that I had been in so many bad relationships and I hadn't seen it. Then when I met her, I was determined to not mess it up, and so I literally did the opposite of all my natural impulses. Like I like would avoid her and like try not to talk to her and keep my distance because I knew if I opened my mouth, I would just come on like gangbusters. And I, I, I didn't trust myself around a not crazy woman. And uh, yeah, so basically hiding everything that was real about me, it, <laughs> it worked, yeah. But you know, here's, here's the real thing was she was actually semi-engaged to a dude at the time. And my my impulse would have been to just undermine that guy and talk crap about him and insult him behind his back. Uh, But instead, I just kept my distance and was starting to take on board this thing of like, maybe not trying to grab what you want might be the way to actually get what you want.
1: And why do you think she, uh, what is it in you that you think she was like, oh, okay, that, that that's my guy.
0: I really wish you were here right now to answer that question because I'm not sure I have the right answer, but I'll take a guess on her behalf. And I think that if I met her anytime earlier in my life, it would have been a no way, a no way. But I think I'd gotten to the point where I was just starting to throttle back and be a little bit less demanding. And so I think that, um, She's a super attractive, athletic, vivacious person. And I think that she's been straight-arming dudes her entire life. And I was finally at the point where I wasn't coming on strong. Mm. Um, and maybe that was it. The fact that she was with a guy. I, 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 didn't, I don't know her previous dude. I haven't met him. But it strikes me that he's that kind of guy, too. A not controlling, not pushy um, kind of guy. So... That was it. I think the fact that we shared things and I was giving her space, that was it. But you,
1: you, I mean, you took a girl from Hawaii and she lived with you for 20 years, which was supposed to be a short period of time. Yeah. yeah. Um, how, how? What is it that you have learned? Cause you can't speak for her. I'm always interested because my perspective now about marriage and relationships, obviously after 25 years is pretty different than what I went in. What are you surprised in yourself that you have learned and also willingly sort of
0: changed uh, just through going through it? So, you know, our nicknames for each other are nervous and reckless. So, her thing is like, oh, I'm not sure. I'm like, ah, oh, come on, let's just do it. Let's just do it, you know? And so, that's a pretty good combination, though. And I think that. I think that she has that natural inclination to really want to plunge into things and, and try them. And to have like a six foot four wingman is a really cool thing to have, uh, particularly someone who's a, a big old cheerleader. Um, I, I, again, I hope she would sign off on this as well, but I feel like I'm really just there saying, you know, you can do it. You're going to be awesome at this. With the burrow racing, you know, when we take in these donkeys, Mika was not a runner. She was not a farm girl. She was not an animal person. And my recollection of me was that I knew from the start that she was going to be awesome at this mm. because she is brave and and compassionate and smiley. And that's what the situation needed, you know, not some guy like me who's kind of grinding his teeth and impatient. What this needed was like sunshine and love. And I thought, yeah, she's gonna be awesome. And so hopefully that's what I bring to the relationship is the sense of like. She's ninety percent there already. She just needs that ten percent to tell her, "Don't worry, you know, I got your back. You're gonna be awesome."
1: I love that. So you you write, "Born to Run," and you learn, and it, it changes you. You lose a ton of weight, and can you can you still? Um, run i mean especially because you're taller listen it's not like you're a light little guy that's you know boing boing bouncing on their feet because you seriously you see certain people and you go that person is one of the few people that is actually built to run yeah Um, yeah most people i see running you just go oh it looks so painful (laughs) are you still maybe you could and i and i if anyone has not read that book and natural born heroes um i definitely encourage them because and and maybe natural born heroes was even a little of even a deeper hit for me. I think that that one was really powerful, but what are the things that you took away? And I know I'm gonna botch how I say the tribe's name, forgive me, it's Tara, how how do you say it?
0: Tara Umara.
1: Thank you. What is it that you, what were they doing that you could as a, as a, you know, regular guy, runner, bring into your practice that you still do now um, that really was so helpful?
0: You know, the thing is, and I wonder if this doesn't reflect your experience with water, is that, you know, these natural movements are are great lie detector tests Mm -hmm. that if you strip away all the accessories, you know, like the special shoes and, and, and also the sense of competition, if you just get back to the thing, it will reveal all the lies you're telling to yourself. So I, I bet you see people in the water, they're just thrashing away like crazy because they feel like they got to go as fast as possible. But if you remove the sense of, hey, I'm not you're not racing, you know, you don't need flippers. You're just going to get in the water and relax. And then you'll see, oh, you know, something if I straighten my back a little bit, if I actually twist a little bit from, you know, you, you see to see those movements where everything becomes more natural and unified and, and artistic. And that's basically what happened with Born to Run. So when I went into this thinking, wait a minute, why is this 80-year-old dude in a canyon in sandals crushing a 200-mile race? And I'm wearing a pair of like Nike Air Vomeros, and I can't run five miles without getting hurt. Like, what's he doing that I'm not? And then you strip away all the stuff, and you get back to basically it's one thing. It's just technique. His technique is dialed in. I have no technique. And that's basically, to me, is what it's all about always. It's, go through the apprenticeship of learning the craft and then you'll be okay. So I am sure if anybody showed me videotape of me today running, I would be horrified because I don't look the way and like the way I do in my brain In my brain, I'm like a gazelle, right? But I have, I think, spent a lot of time and continually think about technique. Like how is my body positioned? How am I hitting the ground? Where are my shoulders? You know, where are my hips? And you would think that's boring, but to me, it's really, those it fun you know, and even in the water.
1: Again, that you talk about, it is that mechanism again. And, and do you think that they studied the craft or they just never departed from our natural ability to run and they just pass it on? Then the kids have a visual example and they, it just perpetuates and that you then went in and sort of relearned this.
0: Yeah, it's exactly that, Gabby. And to me, this is, this is one of the, if there are two things I kind of, rail about and argue about um, that are kind of unpopular opinions. One is about footwear. And the other thing is about competition. You know, this sense of like, you got to win and you got to race. And I think it's so destructive. But if you look at, for instance, like running magazines, it's always about two things. What kind of shoes you wear and like how you can run your fastest marathon and that focus on speed, on like being better on like Strava records, to me, it's so destructive. But when you look at the, the way the Tarumara run, number one, it's never about speed because these guys are going 200 miles through a canyon. You can't sprint, you're taking your time. But the second thing is it's very communal. You know, men and women run together, kids and old people run together. It's, it's uh, a much more of a party on your feet as opposed to this race. They're, they're not isolated with their like air in, you know, their head down, you know, their, their heads are up, they're talking, they're chatting. Um, you know, I, I run when I'm back in Pennsylvania with, with an Amish running club, the Vela Springa guys. And the way they run is do out on the full moon and like run through the countryside in the dark under the full moon. But it's everyone's chatting and talking. It's not, they're not racing each other. They're just hanging out on a a moonlit night. So that's that to me was what the revelation was all about was you're in a group, you're learning from each other and you're not trying to beat each other.
1: And you have said this in your your books uh, because I remember it perfectly and Laird Knight actually talked about it and it was many years ago. Is that um, cooperation is a part of our real survival and our success as a race, and that competition is obviously a byproduct. I mean, listen, people have warred and territories and all of that, but ultimately, competition is like something we've probably made it up because we're bored, and um, it's actually quite against our real evolution. It, that cooperation is really connected to our evolution, and I and I always remembered that because I I like the pursuit of excellence. And I was yes a competitive person when I was playing volleyball, but ultimately it always feels like if you said to me to coach somebody, or to do something with a friend, and that's actually probably why I like team sports because it was the amplification of like together. Um, it really sh- struck me because I thought yeah that feels really good. Um, competition's stressful, you know. It's just I don't. Know, it's right. all this stress. So I, I really a- appreciated that point. So, you know that book led you pretty much to. To, to natural born heroes and, and maybe again, I don't wanna give away the book, but because the reason I'm asking is there's a specific sort of part of the book I would like to get into from your point of view, which is if you can just sort of explain um, the premise of the book with the Nazis coming to Crete thinking, okay, boom, overnight, we'll take these guys out. Um, I don't know how many guys were dropped from the sky, you know, from the Nazi uh, planes and uh, it turned out to be something different. And what I'm curious about first and, and, and you'll take over is when the guys though, a lot of the airmen were dropped, um, they, they hit them in the head uh, also, right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, so maybe you can, you can just sort of share this because I, I wanna talk to you about the Creek culture, about sort of the warrior hero inside of us, but I, I kind of wanna just ask you a different side of it.
0: Yeah. So this is this is what caught my attention. You know, originally when I was researching Born to Run, I learned about a guy who was a different kind of runner, he was a messenger runner on the island of Crete. And that was like the first mystery I was like, wait a second, how is this dude, this shepherd, running 50 miles through the woods, delivering a message, drinking a little bit of moonshine, and then running 50 miles back again? That's a hundred mile ultramarathon through the woods being chased by like Nazi soldiers. Like you couldn't get an Olympic athlete today that could do that and survive. So how's this guy doing it with no training? But then it led me to another thing. So I started to look into that and then I learned more about Crete and Crete is the only place in the world where the resistance began the same day that the Germans invaded. You know, When the Germans invaded um, Belgium and Holland and France, they would conquer the standing army and then the civilians would wait nine or 10 months and form quietly into a resistance army and then they would go into action. On Crete, Like the Germans are literally dropping out of parachutes. And these guys are like, let's go. Let's grab the baseball bat from the, from the garage. and Let's go fight these guys. And I thought, this is amazing. Like, how is it that citizens automatically know exactly what to do the day the Germans arrive? Like, how are you all fighting with unified purpose? And then um, you start to look into Crete and realize this was an island nation that had been doing this forever. They were always under attack. And it wasn't that they were belligerent or hostile or even warriors, is that there was this ancient Greek art of the hero you know, that had been kept on forever. And the idea was, you know, back in ancient Greece, like you didn't have a police force, you didn't have a fire department, um, you had to rely on each other for everything. So if someone's house was on fire, everybody had to run out and then had to put it out. If there was a, a murder on the loose, everybody had to be, there was no, even no standing army in ancient Greece. If you were attacked, Every citizen was a soldier. So that to me was a really important lesson to learn. It was like, well, the fact that people can pull together and defeat a common foe by cooperating is a lesson a lot of us have forgotten. And I wondered whether it was something we could learn again. And that, that's basically what led to the whole story of natural born heroes was realizing this wasn't an accident. There's an art of a hero that relies on strength, skill, and compassion that has been taught for tens of thousands of years on Crete. And that's why in a moment of crisis, everybody knew exactly what to do.
1: So, you know, it, it almost sounds like it's a it's a culture and it's, um, <clears throat> it's almost like they've created a curriculum that becomes, you know, a passed down tale, if you will. But in your experience, I, I guess what I was really curious about was like, the psyche of of somebody like that, because maybe some people are more naturally inclined to be like that. So what happens, is there an instilled psyche to this group or it, you know, because I think we all would maybe like to be, we can be heroes, you know, like stand up, show up, help out, we, we can, um, you know, sometimes you don't always know what to do, but I think it, it, you can also, you know, practice it. But when you were, investigating this, what were, you know, what were you thinking is like the psyche of this group or this behind this idea of this warrior
0: or hero? Yeah, I think that's the main point there, Gabby, is that we are so used to subcontracting everything that we assume that other people are better at stuff than we are. And so we've even subcontracted heroes. You know, heroes are the guys in the Marvel movies that come swooping in and they're bigger than we are and they're stronger and they're braver. And the problem is we've created a difference between them and us, you know, that they, they've got to be something better than I am. And what the Creeds believe is, no, you don't need all that stuff. You know, that if you are well-equipped to take care of yourself, you don't need a lot of courage. The whole idea is to train people so that courage isn't even a factor. So if you've been trained to be smart and agile and clever and nimble, then you're not afraid. Like, you know, if you trained very well for a 5K race, you train really well, you've done all the training, you're not afraid. You know you can handle it. You know, you got to do it. And that's basically what the Art of the Hero is all about. It's not to create people that are braver and more reckless. It's to create people that are so well-equipped, they have such a great tool set, that they've been rehearsing this stuff for so long that it's just natural. Um, it's, it's instinctive. So number one is this idea of compassion, you know, from early childhood. The word hero basically means protector. And the idea is if your first lesson in life is to take care of somebody and people are taking care of you, you have shared that compassion and you feel that I'm responsible for everyone around me and everyone around me is going to take care of me. That's the first step. The second thing is to feel like if you can like, run a long distance, if you can climb a tree, if you can jump into open water and not be afraid. The other day I went out to Point Panic to try and body surf. Dude, I swam out. I got crushed by two big ones. I swam right to hell back in again. But I'm watching these old guys, these guys in their 70s, these like seals that are out there swimming around the waves. But they were so comfortable in that environment, it meant nothing to them. Yeah. So essentially, I guess to answer your question, it's not that there's a difference in um, psyche or mentality. It's just a familiarity with this concept that I really need to be taking care of myself. I need to eat right. I need to get rest. I need to maintain mobility and sinuousness because I'm responsible to take care of those people around me.
1: Yeah. You, you talk about, you know, in our modern day, it's like, you look at the cover of even magazines, it's like muscular strength um, versus adaptability. Yeah. And um, I think that's just a really important reminder. Sometimes people, they bucket fitness, if you will, to like, I bang iron and I eat this much protein. And it's like, it's like, well, yeah, no, it's a, it's a big, Whole full story and circle that involves uh, you know so many so many different things and um, did you I, I feel like obviously you read Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey yeah well how, well how did how did that land for you in in relationship to to what they were doing in, in Crete
0: oh yeah it's it's again what I really love is when you start to work on a project and you start finding validations along the way. Um, One thing I look for, whenever I try to get into questions about fitness or training, I'm very cautious until I start to find a bloodline of the same behavior being repeated over and over and over again. So you look at like cold water plunges. Um, Yes, you know, uh, Jim Hof makes it popular now, but then you go back through history, it's again and again and again, dating back to almost prehistory. Same with barefoot running, you know, you look at the the same sandals that the Tarahumata are wearing today, the Spartans wore them, the gladiators wore them, ancient Roman warriors wore them, it's the same footwear. And so with the hero's journey it was the same thing. Essentially what the hero's journey is all about is like the opening up of the inner eye, like the, the the broadening of the self into realizing that it's not just me, 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 now, 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 but everybody around me and we're all linked in together. And the sooner the hero opens his eyes and lifts his head he realizes that his or her actions are going to send ripples in every direction and they got to be very, very cautious about what that action is. That's when they start to sort of propel themselves into the right direction. Um, but it's essentially, it's all about that, that transformation from being the egocentric child into being the, the caring, uh, mature adult. That, that is the hero's journey right there. You know, and where, where I, and that's what I love about the ancient Greeks was realizing that that journey has to be curated. You can't just trust the five-year-old to figure it out for themselves. You got to show them, hey, you know what? You're responsible for your brother. Your brother falls in the pool. You're better go in there and grab the kid. You know, if your brother's hungry, you better rip that sandwich in half and hand half over. That that's something that needs to be uh, cultivated and and cared for. Do you
1: have patience for that as a parent? You know, you're saying your youngest is 17, and I feel like, you know, 16, 17, especially for a female, they start around 12. Let's say they go through this period where it is all sort of very, there's a crisis, you know, it's all very serious and friendship dynamics and how I look and my shirt and my pants. Like, do you have the patience as a parent to give breathing room to some of that? Or do you, do you nix that?
0: Yeah, I'm really sorry you asked that question <laughs> because well, I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm just, realizing now nah, I'm gonna kind of step in and fix it kind of guy. And uh, Yeah, no, I I think that um, as much as I push for like independence and and resilience at the same time, my instinct is to just like, quick fix, take over myself.
1: You look look great. That friend's not nice anyway. Why do you, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, because I, I think that's always such a delicate balance where you go, oh, they're going through that process of understanding who they are. And, the, you know, we call whatever, dirtying the nest and breaking from you. But sometimes you just think, oh my God, like, no, who cares? It's not a big deal, but you have to sort of let them. And I certainly right. remember even having those, like, this is everything right now. It's like, well, it's yeah. not. But anyway, I yeah. just, I, I wondered. So, okay, I just have a, a few more kind of, these are like informational questions. Um, your fascia. Do you have, when you were learning all of this, and you know, I have friends, I have a friend who's like, you know, I like to get my bang for my buck because I have very little time. She's got three kids. Um, if I'm going to do like stuff to take care of, you know, fascial, uh, you know, kind of tra- treatment, um, were you, did you understand, change your view on that? What did you learn about that?
0: Yeah, you know, it, it's it's one of those things that I feel is constantly reinforced. So I, I wasn't even really aware of fashion when I was working on Born to Run. This was a new element that I started to look into as I was working on Natural Born Heroes. I saw these Cretan shepherds who were literally bouncing up a mountain, you know, they like kangaroos, like, how do you do that? And that's what opened my eyes to what fashion was all about. Uh, I met a, uh, a guy named Lee Saxby, who was a running trainer in London, who sort of started to talk about it, and then Tom Myers, uh, and then, you know, actually ended up leading me to Cali Starrett, and what I liked about it was that something I didn't know previously on Born to Run, I was learning about for natural-born heroes, but it applied backwards, like, ah, if I had known about this stuff in Born to Run, I would have written, written about it there, um, because it all ties in together. The Tarahumata are doing the same thing as the Cretan shepherd. As the same thing as Tom Myers teaching. as the same thing that Kelly Starrett is, is going into. And you start to find these unifying principles. So uh, you talk about the person who wants more bang for their buck. One thing I love about Kelly Starrett is if you can't do it in five minutes with a tennis ball, it ain't worth doing. You know, Everything's quick and simple. And his whole thing back then was if you can get into a deep squat and stretch out that whole chain in your body for about 20 minutes a day, you're good to go. Don't worry about all the fancy stuff. Have you, the, have you ever yeah. seen
1: Kelly put his do an overhead squat?
0: No. It's obnoxious. not.
1: His wife always <laughs> say, you can check your flexibility privilege at the door. It's so beautiful. Top to, you know, fingertip to toe tip. Anyway,
0: it's. No, very- what gets me is whenever I check out his videos, they're like in his garage, but his kids run around the background and he's sitting in this like full on like <laughs> lotus I'm like, dude, you're 240 pounds. Like, how are your legs bending that way? But he's not even thinking about it. It's just how he sits on the floor. Yeah. So you, you asked about so the idea about fascia was um, this was a new thing for me, but I, I just saw the connections in every direction. Everything I happened to be looking at for what I thought was unrelated, all related back to this, to this uh, springy tissue in the body. And if you can tame it and understand it, then you're going to get that bang for the buck that you're, that you're looking for.
1: Sugar, you you did a lot of work about, you know, using sugar for fuel versus what you learned about. And there's been a lot of, you know, conversations around, uh, you you know, stored fat for calories, adaptability, um, metabolic flexibility, all these things. Do you personally um, sort of keep that in practice or do you have, what's that look like for you?
0: The good news is when I do something wrong, I know it's wrong. (laughs) So here's the thing about it was, the revelation for me was that when I encountered Phil Maffetone, uh, what I love about Phil is, Phil's like an agent hippie, like he doesn't have time for the argument. I don't want the flame war online. If you don't believe me, you don't believe me. And so he came up with a simple thing. He got, you know, the, the two week test, which is strip out all the high glycemic foods from your diet for two weeks. And then have a Snickers bar. How do you feel? If you feel shitty, maybe it's the Snickers bar. If you feel good, then maybe you're fine. But what you learn is once you strip out the sugars and the high, the fast burn foods, and then you reintroduce them, you can pinpoint your tolerance level pretty fast. You know, uh, you do the two week test and then you eat a piece of bread, you feel fine. You eat the second piece of bread, suddenly you feel all like saggy and tired. And so that's what I love about it. It's about stripping things down to their bare essentials and then reintroducing them a little bit at a time to see how your body responds and so what i've discovered is that uh i basically can't get away with a high glycemic diet i will put on weight and i will feel bad fast but you know they got chocolate jalapia pie here in hawaii which i never knew about before which i think is a human rights violation that should should not exist uh anyways, that's it. I'll eat a piece of that pie. Every bite, I know what the consequences are, but you know, what are you going to do?
1: Yeah, but I think that's it. It's just being equipped with the information. Okay. So if someone's listening to this and they say, and you know, you talk about being, you know, run, walk, hike, defend, leap, uh, landing, and the importance of knowing how to throw something, right? Yeah, That connects to us being able to kill animals, eating that type of protein, all kinds of things. Okay. If someone's sitting there and they go that's cool you guys but I live in a place that I don't have access to these things. Can do you just say to people hey just encourage taking up something new. Is it going and climbing up, going into a climbing gym and going doing some climbing or learning to throw axes or knives. You know, do you encourage people to just sort of explore these other parts of the ways that we move? Because I think sometimes we get so locked in that we are, and I'll say the word quietly, afraid to do something new and out of our comfort zone, but you must have people all the time who go, hey, I read that book and now I'm doing all this different stuff.
0: You know, not so much. It's surprising. Um, I think we have a lot of trouble getting away from the accomplishment portion. So I get a ton of messages all the time from people like, I want to run barefoot, but I have a marathon coming up. Like, what can I do? They're like, well, dude, don't run the marathon. You know, master the skill. Don't worry about the thing. But I think people are just so concerned about looking bad, like not having the right clothes or not doing it right. And it really inhibits them from trying the stuff. And so, and the thing that I think that is most important to try, though, are those uh, activities, which increase range of motion. And that is something that people are most uncomfortable with. Things where you're moving your body around in a kind of wacky way, people don't like that. They want to be on the treadmill or lifting the weight on the machine. They want a very controlled, uh, unified movement. They don't want to be jumping and leaping around. Because to me, like the two perfect sports, the unimprovable sports that exist in the world are ultimate Frisbee and parkour. Um, Ultimate Frisbee is kind of competitive, but really, you know, people aren't, you know, going the world champion. Most people play ultimate frisbee or just chucking a frisbee around the beach. But when you think about that movement, about catching a frisbee and diving for it and throwing, it's all about trunk rotation. So ultimate frisbee, uh, but, get, you know, people don't think of it as serious. And then parkour, if you can find a parkour troop and go out and work with them, you're going to learn so much so fast. And parkour is adamantly anti-competition these guys these people do not compete uh there's a great video uh, i like to steer people to it's called uh movement of three and there's another one called movement of tree where it's the same as the movement of three but basically these are women out doing parkour and it looks so freaking fun and they're laughing and having a ball but you look at what they're doing it's like so hard but it all became from jumping and twisting and running so you know, to answer your question, I think if you can focus on the activities that encourage range of motion of, of moving around, being flexible, being explosive, being adaptable, ultimate Frisbee, parkour, getting in the water, you know, you, you can't be clumsy in the water because you, it's a great lie detector test. You know, you're gonna, you're gonna see yourself sink quickly. Those are the things I encourage people to try to do. by if, if the And also if, if running, do trail running. If you can get out into the woods, you're jumping over things. You're twisting around things. You're not just beating out a rhythm on a pavement.
1: What do you wear on your feet if you were going trail running?
0: Yeah, so I, I try to match the protection to the terrain. So if um, you know, actually running on asphalt, I'll go barefoot. If I'm going into the woods and it's a normally uh, um, a normal terrain, I'll just wear a pair of uh, that amount of sandals that I like a lot. Uh, barefoot Ted, my friend, Barefoot Ted makes them. If it's a gnarlier trail, I will add protection as the protection is required. But I don't think I wear anything that's more um, built up than a pair of like uh, Merrell um, Barefoot Shoes or Innovates, something like that, uh, New Balance Minimus. Mm-hmm. Nothing that has a lot of cushion because I'm very prone to like adapting back to bad style. So I try to keep as little between me and the ground as possible. What
1: was, I mean, the funny thing is, is that, and, and. You know the opposing character, and again, I really encourage people to, to if they haven't read Natural Born Heroes, you know, they had the Hitler sent uh General Mueller, whose nickname was the Butcher, and um, from Born to Run, you learned about George, whose his nickname was the Clown, which I thought was kind of you know fascinating, like the Butcher and the Clown. But what was George wearing on his feet exactly? I mean, because those were brutal trails that this guy's on,
0: yeah. So, again, it was a revelation to me because I went there. The rocks in Crete are so jagged and then my boots got shredded uh, very quickly. And so did most of the British resistance fighters. But George just had on a pair of these like thin homemade leather bottom boots. But what you learn to do is rather than powering over the rocks, you land lightly, you land gently and you bounce around.
1: I want to end this with... um in running with Sherman and Sherman is a donkey everyone. And it's a beautiful story that you have a rescue and and I, and I won't go on and on into it cause I don't want to ruin it, but that he needs a mission but it, you know, this idea of like it's not different than us. And and certainly, you know, you said for you like it had to be Sherman's idea or so it appeared he had to kind of have friends there had to be a, a mission but you, you said something I thought that was really beautiful that when you came out of that experience with Sherman, that you, um, there was something that you learned something really powerful, which was to to just look and pay attention. And you said that earlier, even being a war correspondent, just be quiet and pay attention. And, And I really appreciated that because I think whether you're in business or you're a parent or, you're just, you know, sort of trying to get through your days. I think this idea of, of just looking and paying attention um, is, is maybe really underrated. So I, uh, I really thank you for your time. And um, what do you have? Do you have something that you want to share that's coming up next? Or is it a secret or um, if not, then where can people just find you and connect with
0: you? Well, I got to first thank you, too, because I've never been in an interview that's this well-prepared ever. And so you want to talk about the art of listening, man. You really bring it. I was so
1: stressed out. I was sitting with Laird like an hour ago, and I was like, I'm always concerned. Can I I honor the person that I'm talking to? And he's like, that's probably why you do a pretty good job.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, honestly, you bring an apprehension to it that you don't need because I felt like you're sharp enough on your feet you could have winged it and done fine. But you actually had me like, oh man, I'm going back and forth between like my personal life to stuff I've written about. Like you really thought this through and then it, it sharpened me up too. So uh, yeah, that's where anxiety pays off for you because you came in super well-prepared.
1: Well, I just think we're so all connected and have such similar things. And I just always wanna find that. In, in the stories because um, that just seems to be the thing that always comes up for me. I meet the most extraordinary people that have done beautiful work like yourself. And you just realize if we can keep being reminded that we're all trying, we all have a hard time sometimes. Um, and that doesn't mean you can't be badass and, and, and still really show up. So do you have something that you're excited about or do you wanna keep that a little of a,
0: Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm happy to. So I'm, I'm working on a new book now. Um, the their operating title is King of the Weekend Warriors. But what I'm looking at are these two guys that I know who are best friends. And one of them is super like alpha dog and the other guy is super Mr. Chill Zen. Um, but together, they've they've set nine different Guinness World Records together. And. What I'm looking at is that role. I, I want to keep exploring this whole idea of competition. And I feel like it has it's been such a destructive force. Um, we're seeing a lot more now, too, of high-performing women who start to have these breakdowns, uh, physical breakdowns, because they're pushing the, both their body image and their competition level. So what I, what I want to challenge is this notion that we have to compete. We have to be best. We have to win, 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 or go, go, go all the time. And I'm using these two guys and their friendship as a launching spot uh, for that story.
1: Well, I, I know that that is a really hard process, putting together a book, and, uh, but I, I will look forward to when it... Do you have a deadline? Do you have an editor? <laughs> you down your over your head right now?
0: Yeah, well, Susan's not around anymore, so deadlines are a whole different story. Yeah, I have an editor. Uh, and What I tend to do is not do anything until he starts yelling at me. Um, yeah. And he's not a yeller, so <laughs> I'm, I'm dawdling along. I'm getting there.
1: All right, well, I uh, again, I I'll look forward to the next book and, and give my uh, alohas to your family. Sure, and, uh, great. And uh, do you ever feel like you run too slow in the sand? Does that frustrate you ever?
0: No, too slow, I'm happy, I'm fine with too slow. Yeah, yeah. that was a, my starting point.
1: There's a beach on Kauai that I run on. It's called It's or Lumahai, it's very deep. It's so yeah. deep, it is super aerated, it's a, it's a shore break. And I go, I know I feel like I'm running, but if you watch me, I think I look
0: like I'm just walking. Right, right. You're just pantomiming running.
1: (laughs) And stuff breathing, you know, so heavy. So thank you.
0: Thanks, Gabby. That was great. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the the behind-the-scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday.
0: Seeking the truth never gets old.